welcome to another episode of Chandelier Chats. I'm your host, Rochelle LaCour. We have a wonderful returning guest today. We have Ms. Terry Kozlowski, who is an author, a life coach, and a podcast host, who is also of Native American heritage. And today we are going to be talking about a very sensitive subject, generational patterns of behavior. What are they, where they come from, and how to navigate them? So please join me in welcoming back Miss Terry. Welcome back to the show. How are you? Thank you very much, Rochelle. I'm doing great. And this is one of those subjects that, although you think it's hard to talk about, it's one of those subjects I love talking about because people really don't pay attention to where their beliefs come from. Mm-hmm. And just because mommy and daddy said it was so doesn't mean that it's so just like, just because you think of it in your head doesn't make it your reality. That's right. So we need to examine where these behaviors come from and why they're so ingrained, not only in us, but in our society. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about it. What is a generational pattern of behavior? So My definition of that is those things that get passed down from our families, and we all have them, whether it is, you know, the sarcasm that comes out and that everybody pokes fun at each other, or it can be something as, you know, my grandmother, God rest her soul, um, came up through a generation of World War II, as well as all the racial injustice that was going on. And when she talked about African-Americans, she did two things. Number one, she called them colored people. And number two, she whispered. Mm-hmm. And so anytime that I would be talking about my African-American friends, she always said, she would always like do this. Like I was supposed to lower my voice or something. And I never really understood it because I grew up very differently than my grandmother. I grew up when I was younger in Um, Maryland, suburb of Washington, D.C. So I was technically a minority. There was 60% African Americans in my elementary school versus me being Native American, which was, I was, my sister and I were the only Native Americans in the school, but also then from the white population, it was, you know, a much smaller population than the African Americans. So when I moved to Western Pennsylvania, where my grandmother lived in I guess I would have been third or fourth grade. I actually asked my dad, where are the African-Americans? Because I was now in a predominantly all white school. And it wasn't until sixth grade that I actually saw another person of color. Wow. In my school system. So I understand where some of these things come from. But the second aspect of that is what do we feed ourselves? Mm -hmm. What are we watching? What I mean, are we watching television shows that are racial stereotypes so that, that we are seeing African Americans or we're seeing Asians in gangs or Hispanics in gangs? And so now we're feeding our egos all that negativity so that when we see a person of color, mm-hmm. what is our ego saying? <gasps> is it something we're supposed to be afraid of because that's what we fed ourselves? Or is it something that, you know, I've had no negative experiences with any African-American people in my entire life. So why should I think that I'm going to have one now? Mm -hmm. And I, yeah, me personally, I've never had uh, a terrible or bad experience with any person of color, white or otherwise. (laughs) Well, I shouldn't say that white or otherwise, because how do you describe 
white, how do you describe Caucasian? Because there are many people who look Caucasian like myself. And when you get into the, the reality of what my background is, there's not a lot of Caucasian in there. It's just, this is how it came out. <laughs> so I think absolutely everybody should do DNA testing of some 23andMe or Ancestry or something, because when you see your racial mix-up, you will mm -hmm. see that we're all mutts. Yep. <laughs> we are all mutts. There are very few of us that have 100% of anything. And I am pretty darn close to being 69% um, Native American slash Asian. Interesting. Okay. Because that, well, technically. Slash Asian. Well, the reason is where do Native Americans come from? Technically, if you look at the history, you know, Native Americans came over from China and came down and settled the Americas. So most of us Native American population are going to have some of that Mongolian or Oriental background somewhere in our underlying purpose, underlying DNA. Um, and we need to look at that because the reality is, even though, you know, the other part of me is, a, is Italian and English, actually, my grandmother always told me she was English, but she's not, she's Irish. So, you know, <laughs> it's completely different than what we think that we are told from mm -hmm. the people before us. Mm -hmm. So we have to look at the fact that number one, we are all mutts. We are mm -hmm. all mixed. We are all people of color in some sort of way. But we mm -hmm. also have a lot of baggage that we've carried on through us. So some of the examples I can give from, from personal experiences, my mother was ripped away from her Native American heritage at the age of 16. She was given up for adoption because of poverty. And she and her two younger sisters, they were 16, 15, and 14, were moved out of Fort Yukon, Alaska, eight miles inside the Arctic Circle, living in sustenance living, so no running water, no electricity, into what she affectionately called the white man's world. And in the white man's world, everything about who she was was ripped away from her. She wasn't allowed to keep her clothes. She wasn't allowed to speak her language. She had to wear white girl dresses. And then she was put she was adopted by missionaries so she then had to become christian so she did all these things to try to fit in and try to gain love from her new adoptive family but at the same time she started hating herself because this wasn't who she was mm -hmm. and by the time she was 18 she was drinking alcohol as a way to stuff now my mother then taught my sister and i that showing our emotions wasn't good we needed to stuff them who we authentically are isn't what we're supposed to be because society wants us to be something else. And if you, if we all look at how our loving parents raised us, they wanted us to conform into a mold that was good girls, good boys, that we were good kids and that we were, you know, some of us were taught to be seen and not heard. Some of mm -hmm. us were taught to make sure that, um, how we presented ourselves was doesn't matter what the chaos is going on in the family we always presented ourselves in a certain way so that people didn't know so there mm -hmm. was always shh it's a secret yeah, yeah. so hush, we, hush hiding we, we all have that in our background at some point and so as young children we come into this world being authentically ourselves and then we are conformed by our parents then there's peer pressure that, to conform so that we all are alike 
And we end up being a mismatch of conforming of masks and armor and labels and things that we've put on ourselves to cover up our authentic selves. And that's what a generational pattern of behavior is. It is a mask or a piece of armor or a label we have taken on that came from our parents or our grandparents or our great grandparents. And it gets passed down from one generation to the next. Some of these can be good. If you look at Hispanic families in general, they are very, very close families. They have, not only do the kids and the parents and the grandparents and the great grandparents all live in the same household or they all live very close. There's a great communal bonding that they have which is a very positive thing. And during COVID, we have to think that that was really good for those families to have that type of bonding where you could share in all that was happening around, you know, in the household and people weren't left alone. Whereas when you have, it's just my husband and I and COVID happened, it was just the two of us for 30 mm -hmm. days straight. 30 days straight, just the two of us. We found out we really do love each other and it wasn't really a problem. <laughs> for a lot of people, that much togetherness, if they aren't used to it, can be a problem. And learning what those patterns of behavior are, I think a lot of them came to light when you have to be together so much. Yes. And I want to just touch on this as well, because that in itself, spending time apart your husband goes one way for work, you go another way for work. That is also a generational pattern mm -hmm. because of what, what, I, what was it? The first or second world war when women started going into the workforce or second, in the 1950s, yeah. Yeah, 1950s or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So women started going into the workforce and now who was there to look after their children, who was there to raise their children, not them because mm -hmm. they were now working and their husbands were off at war and Mm -hmm. Now you have the great divide happening within the family. You can actually visibly see the split that happened there. And that is also, to me, that is a generational pattern of behavior because now it's become ingrained. Oh, well, that's just what mom and dad do. So when I grow up, that's what I need to do. And when my kids grow up, that's what they need to do. You can see how easy it is for a pattern to just set itself in and just overtake things. And I'm, I'm just curious. What other patterns do you notice? What are some really prominent, common patterns that you notice? Um, there is a pattern of hatred that is passed down. There is a pattern of abuse that gets passed down. There's a pattern of how we decide that we're going to uh, deal with those hard emotions like anger. Um, those are all patterns of behavior that we've learned from our families. So you had mentioned going to work. And I went to college, I got a degree, and then I had a baby, and then I chose to stay home. Nice. And my dad made lots of comments to me about wasting my time getting an education because I was a stay-at-home mom. Mm. So again, you have loving people. My dad loves me. He eventually realized that I, had, I made a conscious choice for a reason, mm -hmm. and I wasn't going to put, you know, he saw... His other, he has over 12 grandchildren. He saw other grandchildren being put into daycare and how they turned out differently than my son turned out because my son turned out much more like me than, you know, some of the other grandchildren who were put in daycare. Mm -hmm. So because of that, 
we have these things that we think are okay and are normal. Yeah, I'm let's sorry. use quotes there. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I don't believe in normal. We're not supposed to be normal. We're all created unique. We're all created for a purpose and we're supposed to be our authentic selves. And for us to do that, it doesn't mean that we have, we're supposed to stay in a certain path. Mm -hmm. So you talked about that. So let's look at some of those other generational patterns I have brought up. So let's look at anger. How do you deal with anger? How do you deal with those emotions that are painful? Mm -hmm. My mother chose to stuff them. She chose to stuff them with alcohol. She chose to stuff them with drugs. My sister and I learned to stuff. I, however, chose not to stuff with substances. I chose to stuff with becoming a workaholic and mm -hmm. doing things because that's a way to, when you stay too busy, you can't deal with yourself. Right. So you can't, and you don't deal with emotions. So those are the things that I learned as a child. That was the right thing. This is how you're supposed to handle things when you're mm -hmm. upset, you stuff them. Well, as you get older, you find out, you know what? That's not working for me. And that's the other side of the coin in dealing with generational patterns of behavior is we have to become aware that they exist. Because if we're not aware of their existence, how are we going to change them? How are we going to think that there's a, a different way, a better way of handling things? So awareness is really the first step that has to be taken in breaking those generational patterns mm -hmm. of behavior. I think it's interesting as well, because you mentioned that a lot of people are running around with a mask on. And I think that there are many meanings to that right now in the sense that there is a veil that has been placed over your eyes because how you grow up and who raises you does have a massive influence on how you turn out in your adulthood. It's, it's very apparent to me that pretty much everything goes back to conception to age seven. Those are the most impressionable years of any child's life. And I think it's really powerful to also recognize that just because those are the people who raised you and just because that's the family that you grew up in or the patterns that you grew you grew up around, it doesn't mean that it has to overshadow how you process and how you do things in the rest of your life. And I, speaking from my own experience, like you said, I had to become aware of what generational patterns were playing out. And another big genera generational pattern that I recognized that, that was rampant in my family was divorce. That is a divorce. Like divorce is like a massive piece in, in my generational lineage. And it was not something that I wanted to do. It was not something that I wanted to have any in engagement or involvement with. And I was like, okay, I'm going to be very selective about my partners. I wasn't at first, but you know, I grew, I had to, I mm -hmm. had to pick those partners because those were the examples that my mother provided for me. Mm -hmm. Again, another generational pattern. I chose the people that, you know, most closely resembled either my mother or my father, or that sort of reflective relationship, as you know, and it wasn't until I started going, holy crap, like there's a lot of patterns here that I just don't want to pass on. And I actually made a decision at one point where I, I didn't even want to have children because I was like, I, I don't want to pass any of this garbage on. Like, this is terrible. <laughs> you know, I didn't realize in my naivety and in my youth that there were things that I could do to get better. So can you chat a little bit with us about what are some things that people can do aside from becoming aware? How can people start to feel empowered to even become aware? So I relate to not wanting to have children. Uh, my, when I was dating my first husband, he always said he wanted eight kids. And I was like, I'm not having any kids. <laughs> you know, I, 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 my trauma, my childhood trauma 
really made it very clear to me that until I was healthy, I shouldn't be trying to pass. No, I shouldn't be dealing with children. And then I got pregnant and I mm -hmm. was on the pill. So I was one of that percentage that still gets pregnant on the pill and literally had to get, be told by the optician or excuse me, um, my gynecologist to quit taking the pill. Cause I was take I took the pill the morning I went to see her to find out I was pregnant. Um, because I didn't believe it. I thought something else was happening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, of course. But the moment I, I realized my God, I'm pregnant and oh no, I am. I know I'm codependent. I know I'm codependent. I need to deal with myself. And it's one thing to be aware. It's another thing to take action mm. to stop it. So it. awareness, I think we really all at some level know this something isn't quite working for us. And until we really hone in and say, okay, what can I do to change this? What can I do to alter my perception? What can I do to reframe how I'm going to move forward with life? How can I use this codependency? to actually pivot and reframe it into something that is useful and beneficial to me now. So codependency no more had been out for a while by the time um, I found out I was pregnant. I went through the book, I went through the um, workbook and it must've taken me longer than most to get through it because my son wasn't born until 10 months later. <laughs> so he, he, he decided, yeah, he decided to procrastinate um, and I went through, completed the coursework and thought, okay, I am codependent no more. Well, I understood the basics. I understood that some of my behavior was not proper behavior because it was learned in how I handled and dealt with my mother. And mm -hmm. codependency really is that behavior, that strange behavior that we have with people who abuse us, people who are in a, uh, dependent relationship on alcohol or drugs, where we are trying to protect that person from themselves or from others. So I, if, when my mother would pass out drunk, I would grab her glass and dump it and, you know, clean up everything. So my dad didn't find her with mm -hmm. her alcohol or mm -hmm. she threw up, I would clean up her mess. So my dad didn't find it. So she wouldn't get in trouble. Mm -hmm. So that was the strange. And, you know, I'm talking about five, six, seven years old, I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. So those behaviors, when you learn them so young are really ingrained. So in my first marriage, I was making sure when my uh, ex-husband, you know, miscommunicated information with his mother, I would go in and clean up mm -hmm. because I was good at that. I know what this is. And it took a while before I realized, you know what? It is not my job to clean up his messes because he will never learn how to do it. And that's part of that taking action and reframing it and understanding that my help, what I considered help, really wasn't helping the situation. It was allowing bad behavior to continue. It's and enabling. If, exactly. It's enabling. And when we want the bad behavior to stop, we have to stop allowing it to occur in a way that we keep cleaning up the messes. So from awareness comes action. And from action is about reframing how we look at things. And I reframed my um, helping 
with the idea that other people need to learn how to clean up their own messes Mm -hmm. because we all have to grow and expand. That's what our souls are meant to do. And if I kept doing it for my ex-husband, he would never learn to do it. And he, mm-hmm. that's a skill set he needed to learn. I wasn't supposed to be cleaning up the mess with his mother on a continual regular basis. Mm-hmm. Which is also interesting that you mentioned that because even that can be a generational behavior pattern where, so for myself, it was constant, like our household was a little bit militant in certain ways. And, you know, while both of my, my mom and my, my stepfather were both alcoholics, you know, I became an adult at a very young age Mm -hmm. because I had to look after my younger sister, much like yourself. Like I, I definitely resonate with that and totally, totally understand that. I realize now as I'm married, that there are certain things, for example, when you're done eating, you immediately do the dishes. They don't sit there and wait. They don't go in the dishwasher for tomorrow. You do them now. And I, I, I've noticed this, this pattern where I'm like, hmm, why do I care if the dishes get done immediately now? Why can't I just go sit down and enjoy conversation with my husband or with our family or friends or you know whatever we're doing? Why can't I just enjoy that? And I remember so clearly, as soon as your plate was done, you took it to the sink and you either started doing all of the dishes that were left over or you had to clean up the rest of the table. And that was good for us, obviously, structurally, Mm -hmm. but it also wasn't good for us because that was the only way that we were able to make sure that things were going to be done because my, as I mentioned, you know, having alcoholic parents, uh, it was primarily me doing the cooking anyway. Mm -hmm. So if they did sort of contribute, it was very minimal. And it's just so amazing to me, the awareness around which patterns come up, even the way we talk to people, even the tone that we use for people can be a behavior or a pattern that is passed on. Like right down to the very language. It's so interesting. I'll hear my sister say something and I'm like, wow, that sounds so much like my mother. (laughs) And she, and she, she's starting to realize now, like, oh my gosh, I sound like mom. And I'm like, yeah, we need, let's, let's work through this <laughs> Not that it's a bad thing, but there are just some things that you just don't want to continue to play out. So can you speak a little bit more about why we continue to play these things out through the, throughout our life? Because it's what we're used to. Yeah. And the, the other thing that happens is when you get through one thing, a new thing will rise up because it's, a, it's about clearing things out and becoming our authentic selves. And you can't be your authentic self if you're carrying around the baggage of your parents, if you're carrying around you know, old relationships and how you dealt with that first relationship isn't gonna work in this relationship. So it's changing those dynamics as we learn that they don't work or as we learn that there has to be a better way than this. Or when we hear ourselves say something like our parents and we don't like it, examine why it is, number one, why it is we don't like it. Number two, why it is we're saying it. What, mm-hmm. what is it that caused us that that automatic response within us reacted to that in a way that was very much a pattern from somebody else? Because it obviously when you hear that and you don't like it, you know that it's not truly who you are. 
Mm-hmm. So when we look at those behaviors that we don't like about ourselves, or we look at those behaviors we don't like about our parents, or those beliefs, and I really think the beliefs are the harder ones. Behaviors are easier to change than, than those beliefs that we were raised as, you know, when we're children, because mm-hmm. hate is a learned behavior. Mm-hmm. Nobody comes into this world hating. You don't know what hate is. Everybody comes in this world loving. And if you watch small children, they don't see color. They don't see ethnicity. They don't, all they see is a happy face and they want to love on the happy face. That's mm-hmm. it. Whether mm-hmm. or not you're talking about a baby, a toddler, or three or four or five years old, once they get to school, it changes mm-hmm. because it, that dynamic starts occurring and they really it's sad to watch that change <laughs> to, yeah. to occur in small children, but we have to break those patterns. And the reason we have to break them is for me, I wanted to break them because I didn't want my child to have to deal with the patterns of behavior I was dealing with. Mm-hmm. I didn't want him to deal with codependency. I didn't want him to have to deal with negativity and the thought patterns that go in your head because people were saying nasty things to you and they were your parents. Mm. calling you names, you know, replaying those tapes. And I wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to make bad tapes for my son to play in his head. So when we break those patterns, it's really out of a place of love for our children. That's the Mm -hmm. ultimate gift you can give your child is breaking those patterns of behavior in yourself so they don't have to deal with them. So how do we break them? Part of that is, you know, we talked about awareness. We talked about reframing them in a way that they can be useful or to make sure that we understand that those patterns do not serve us. And so mm-hmm. we, we will find a, what is true for us. Mm-hmm. So my grandmother who talked about colored people, um, <laughs> It's so funny <laughs> to whisper. And, and, so. and it is, but at the same time, that is truly how she communicated about, mm-hmm. about the whole class of people. And when all is said and done, she wasn't trying to be disrespectful. Anything, she was trying to be respectful during a time where there, you know, being kind was seen as being outside of the norm. Hmm. and going against what society norm was at the time when she was, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, and it just, you know, when you get to be, she was born in the teens, (laughs) Mm -hmm. when you, when you get to be 60, 70 years old, those patterns of behaviors are really, really hard to change at this point. They are ingrained. So, you know, these are the things that you want to do in your 20s, 30s, 40s, where they're not ingrained and you know that you want to become all that you can possibly be and the best version of yourself. And the best version of yourself absolutely doesn't hate anybody, absolutely doesn't go around whispering about other people. It is about full out, playing it out all, you know, loving everybody you meet as you would love yourself as you would love your family, as you would love your child, everybody you meet, you respond with love. That is the ultimate goal for everybody. And if you have angst about doing that because of what you see, then there's a pattern of behavior you need to change. Mm. This is so fascinating to me because 
there is a there is a huge difference between your pattern of behavior and your mindset and our mindset also can come from our parents and so for example alcoholic parents my mom was a functional alcoholic meaning she was able to go to work she was able to cut herself off the night before and still go to work the next day kind of thing like she she never missed a shift or anything like that my mother was the same yeah but it just it compounded for me it compounded the fact that I was doing things alone. I was the young adult in our household starting at a very young age. And now seeing how that's playing out, like again, the militant attitude, the workaholic attitude, the you know, not being able to be okay with the dishes not being done immediately and just enjoying people's company. And those are things that are starting to shift, but it's those mindsets. It's those, how behaviors are one aspect, but- Beliefs. Um, beliefs yes where where is that word going (laughs) yeah so can you talk a little bit more about beliefs and how do we work through the belief systems that are instilled in us a lot of our belief systems come from coping mechanisms that we have put into place to deal with whatever negativity traumas that occurred in our life if we have an alcoholic parent and we are taking on roles that we shouldn't or we are allowing codependency to to come into play. Those were coping mechanisms that we took on that our ego put into place so that we could live life and be semi-safe in our environment. So as we get older, as we grow, and we realize, hmm, these coping mechanisms are actually now, I'm seeing that they're harmful. And which is what happened with the codependency with my getting pregnant and my son being born was I saw that codependency was going to be a, which was a coping mechanism, negative impact on him. So we Mm -hmm. I had to alter what it was I was doing. And that altering of behavior goes back to where did this behavior come from? Now I completely understood where my codependency came from, but a lot of us don't understand where our angst with people of color come from. You know, why is it that African-Americans and Asians, you know, there's some angst between those racial entities. There's a lot of angst between Native Americans and the white man Mm -hmm. for a lot of good reasons, just like there are a lot of historical reasons for African-Americans to be upset with the white man. But the reality comes down to a majority of those underlying racial tensions that were generations ago that they occurred still have wounds in our belief system that under underturns all that it is we do so if you my mother really really believed that it was all the white man's fault the white man caused the alcoholism on the reservation they caused the reservations they took the land they gave disease they did all these things now Is it true from a historical perspective? Absolutely. Was it true for my mother? Now, there is some truth for my mother that she was, her culture was ripped away from her, but it wasn't because the white man came in and took her. It was because her mother made a conscious decision to give up her three oldest daughters to live a better life. Mm -hmm. So, my mother could have looked upon that as a gift 
but that's not how she saw it. Mm-hmm. Her perception was the white man did this. Mm-hmm. So depending on your perception will depend on whether or not you rise above your circumstances. Mm-hmm. Could my mother have risen above being adopted? Absolutely she could have. Can poor people overcome where they th- think they are if they've always been on so you know living off of social security or whatever type of uh, welfare that they have can they rise above that yes they can but they have to believe they can mm-hmm. and if there's a generational pattern of behavior where you stay on welfare you have more children you stay on welfare and then your kids have children and they stay on if there's that pattern and they don't see any way out they don't see an alternative way to live and that that option is available to them mm-hmm. then that thought pattern that belief system is going to get carried on because what we think we become what we believe is what how our life flows those mm-hmm. thoughts become things and all of that is something that awareness has to play a role mm-hmm. and becoming aware that what the ego is telling you inside your head isn't always the truth. Most of the time it's not. Mm. Most of the time it's not. The ego's job is to protect you. The ego's job is to make everything stay the same. Mm -hmm. And if you want your life to stay the same, keep doing what you're doing because it won't change. Mm -hmm. But if you want your life to get better, if you want to break those patterns, if you want to have your dreams come true, You have to stop listening to your ego and staying safe. You're going to have to take a risk. You're going to have to try something new. You're going to have to move out of your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And all of that is scary to the ego because Mm -hmm. that means that I could take a misstep. I could lose friends. I could look silly. And that's true. But in the growth process, all of that can happen. And in the growth process, as long as you're learning the lesson along the way. So -hmm. when I take a misstep, what did I learn from it? When I look silly, it's okay. I made mm-hmm. people laugh. I'm laughing at myself. I'll know better next time. But if you learn the lesson along the way, then there are no missteps. There's just continual progress forward, continual movement towards your dreams. Yeah, you're either winning or you're learning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you alluded to a couple of things here that I just would really like to also touch on. You mentioned about you know seeing in the movies um, Asian gangs or, or black gangs or whatever. And that is all a pre-programming televisions are there to tell a vision. And I think that that's something that people get lost in a little bit. Like, you know, they, they just stereotype that just because I saw it in a movie or in a TV show over and over and over again, it's just like black dogs. Have you ever noticed that black dogs are usually the last ones to be adopted because in movies, they're always made out to be the bad dogs. It's not because they're black. It's just because that's what people have used in their, in their programming and in their television. And to think that we're not being programmed is a massive deception, which I also wanted to share. Our perceptions, like you mentioned, our perceptions are deceptive because just mm-hmm. because we think something doesn't mean it's actually true. I can think the sky is purple all I want. Is it true? No but that's my perception. Mm -hmm. So if that's my perception, what am I hanging on to that doesn't allow me to see it to be blue, to see it for what it truly is. And our school systems are massive indoctrination systems. 
massive indoctrination systems. And it's actually an embarrassment to me to see like, and how infallible they are in, in this time right now. It's, it's actually, um, you know, it's a little bit depressing to me to see <laughs> the school systems. And, you know, you mentioned you went to school with a primarily colored uh, primary Afri- African-American I think you said it was like 60 mm-hmm. or 70% African-American and so you must have had a big culture shock going to a primarily Caucasian school after that and I mean I, I can speak to both experiences because when I went to school it was primarily Native Native American and like maybe 30% Caucasian and then everything else was the mix you know Greeks Italians mm-hmm. whatever um, and now it's like it's like unheard of for there to be a dominance of one in another, mm-hmm. depending on the school system you go mm-hmm. to, you know, if you go to maybe Jewish school or something, maybe it's all Jewish people, I don't know. But I'm just curious, like, can you share a little bit more about the, the perception and how deceptive our perceptions can be? So our perceptions initially come into place for a reason. So my perception of Hispanic men, because three Hispanic men uh, raped me when I was 11, was negative. Mm-hmm. Very good reason for my ego to say, ah, Hispanic men, watch out. Understandable. But when I went into the workforce and all through high school and college, Hispanic men terrified me. Mm-hmm. Um, when I got into the workforce, however, I was working around a lot of Hispanic men and found out that they're just nice people, just like everybody else is nice people. Just because you have one or two or three bad ones doesn't mean it translates to the whole the whole population so over time I realized that I had more positive experiences with Hispanic people Hispanic men than I did with negative experiences so when my ego goes (gasps) I can say it's okay I've had more positive experiences negative experience and my fear will dissipate but we have to learn to do that we, yes. have to just, we have to say, you know what, I'm not going to watch these shows anymore. And it's interesting because the way I actually realized this was during COVID. My husband and I watched every single Marvel movie and television series <laughs> yeah. through COVID. Mm-hmm. In, or, in the proper order. I got it all printed out and we, we watched it all through. And I realized this is so interesting. Look at this. You have in, um, and I can't remember, it must, it must have been Jessica Jones. You have the white female hero, and then you have an African-American kind of hero, and he ends up getting his own show eventually, so he does become the hero. And But part of the wars going on in the background are between the Asians and the African-Americans, and you know, I'm thinking there's not or and there's there's a hispanic group so there's all these different groups that are gangs and yet some of the worst bullies in society are in your elementary and middle schools Mm -hmm. and they aren't gangs they're just kids who don't have proper outlets for expression who don't have proper support from parents at Mm -hmm. home or maybe you know, maybe they were molested as kids. That seems to be pretty common, pretty rampant in society. This can definitely shift your character in ways you don't know because you don't know how to deal with that trauma and pain as a kid. You don't know how to, you don't know how to talk about even, it. Even if you are raped as an adult, 
Yes. And you have the correct coping mechanisms. You don't handle it well. No. Most people no. don't handle it well. No. And because of the fact that it's a trauma, when you are a child and trauma happens, you absolutely, there's a part of you that never really gets to the place where it understands there is something different. Mm -hmm. It took me almost 40 years to realize I, I don't have to associate myself with that trauma. I am not my trauma. Yes. Okay. I am not my trauma. I am who I choose to become and I choose to become my authentic self. And when we make that mindset shift into all of us saying, I'm going to be authentic with you. It may, I may show you some vulnerability. I may show you some sides of myself I don't particularly like, and you're probably not going to like either. But if I do that, then you can be your authentic self. And when you show me your vulnerabilities, I'm not going to poke at you. And I think society, the, for me, one of the biggest things that I see recently as a huge generational pattern of behavior, and you probably will recognize it too in, in your friends and family, is sarcasm. Mm -hmm. Because I think sarcasm is the kind way to bully one another. Mm. Because if you really think about it, you are poking at somebody's open wound, something, something that could be tender, and you are poking at it in a way that everybody thinks is funny and everybody just laughs it off. But the reality is you are actually hurting somebody. And if you don't like sarcasm being thrown at you and your vulnerable point, why in the world would you do it to anybody else? Mm -hmm. But there are comedians who make millions of dollars Oh yeah. Being sarcastic to everybody around them. Yes. And because of that, it's in television shows. We decide to take that on and bring it into our families. My family is full of smart asses from my husband to myself, to our uh, three kids, absolutely yep. smart asses and poke, 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 poke. And I realized a couple of years ago that I really think this is being unkind. I'm supposed to be loving these people. So poking at a wound or something that's scabbed over really isn't being kind. It's not loving. It's not responding in love. Mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of saying, ah, I'm better than you. Mm -hmm. And my ego doesn't need that because, you know, it, I'm fine being authentically me. So I quit doing it. And I've made comments to each of them separately because trying to do this and have them all gang up on me and being uh -huh. pokey pokey, I wouldn't have liked. So I did this <laughs> separately with them. And it's interesting because when I had my conversation with each of them, they respected my wishes mm -hmm. and we don't have that. But do they do it to one another? Absolutely. They do it to one. It didn't stop them from doing it to others. It stopped them from doing it with me. And mm -hmm. I don't do it with them. So now they know that if I'm saying something that is a little tender to them, it's coming from a place of love. It's not coming from a place where I'm trying to show I'm better than them or my way is the right way. It's like, I want you to look at this from a different perspective. I want you to see this pattern that you may be repeating that you may want to take a look at. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting that you mentioned this as well, because Traditionally, in Germanic families, we don't understand sarcasm. And my husband will make a smart aleck remark, and I'm like, what? 
and I get it. And I like, I'm a very sarcastic person as well. So I, I have an easier time dishing it out than I do understanding when it's coming back to me. There's just sort of probably a generational block there (laughs) (laughs) where I'm just like, no, no, I'm not good. I don't, I don't want to listen to that, but you're right. It does, it does provoke or poke at parts of ourselves that can be a little bit tender. So the next phase and final phase of moving out of generation patterns of behavior is to empathize with, you know, our parents, our grandparents, empathize with where that came from. Understand why I, I completely understand why my grandmother talked about colored people in whispers. Mm-hmm. I understand why my mother was so angry with the white man. I mm-hmm. understand them, but that doesn't mean that that is my experience. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that I have to carry on and be whispering about others or being extremely angry with the white man or government or whatever concerning how the Native Americans were treated. So there's empathy. And the next part is forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Because you had touched on the fact that why do we cling? Well, we cling because we're attached. We have something to gain by staying attached. Well, that's my grandma. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't I love my grandmother and follow my grandmother's ways? No, you shouldn't. Not, you know, there are those things that you, you know, make Make the follow same. your grandmother's recipes. Follow Don't your recipes. Yes. Follow her recipes. Follow her gardening. All those things are great things to continue to pass on. But the generational patterns of behavior, the belief systems that they had for a reason based on their life experiences doesn't mean that I've had the same life experiences and doesn't mean I shouldn't change them. Forgiveness is the way that we release our attachments to mm-hmm. others. It's our way to say, I understand and I forgive you for trying, for passing that on to me, but I am choosing not to take, move forward with that. I'm leaving that with you. Yeah. And, and forgiveness when- does not mean that you are condoning the behavior or that the behavior is okay. It just means that you're willing to say this was not okay, but I need to move on with my life. You are literally setting yourself free. Forgiveness is another word for freedom. Correct. Me. It absolutely is. And it's also a sign that you're healing when you can forgive. It's a sign that you are healing from that pattern of behavior, that you're making that pivot. You're making that change. Mm -hmm. But don't wait until you feel like it because you may never feel like forgiving. Forgiveness. It's not about a feeling. It's about, do I want to stay stuck to the past? And I don't ever want to stay t- stuck to the past. My Everywhere I want to go is, is future bound. I'm living in the present moment, but where I'm going is future bound. And if I don't forgive, I stay locked in the past. Yes, very true. And with that, Terry, as we close, would you like to share about your book and some final words of wisdom today? So in my book, Raven Transcending Fear, you can read about how I overcame my um, patterns of behavior and also through the trauma, the different tools I use to reframe um, the negative beliefs that I had and how I changed my coping mechanisms. So all that's in the book, raventranscendingfear.com is the website. It's also available on Amazon. People can contact me at terrykazlowski.com and I'm across all the different media outlets. So I'd be happy to connect with anybody. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for being a returning guest and I look forward to the next time, Terry. Thank you very much, Rochelle. You have a great day. Thank you.
Thank you so much for tuning in. Please don't forget to like and subscribe. Thank you.